The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Andrew Newberg now presents his lecture, What God Does to Your Brain. So I'm going to be talking today about what God does to your brain and uh, talking a lot about the neurotheological research we've been doing, uh, some of the brain scans, and, and really just talking about the different ways that we can try to get at uh, really the question about the different ways that God may actually change your brain and how that may happen. So, you know, where does all this begin? Uh, you know, while uh, in the introduction you heard that I do brain scans of people while they're engaged in prayer and, and other types of spiritual practices, um, but interest in how the human mind and ultimately our brain in helps us to engage religion and spirituality, it dates back thousands of years. I mean, ultimately, uh, we may even ask the question about, you know, how, how did all of this happen? Did God create the brain to be a certain kind of way? Uh, of course, I get asked these kinds of questions all the time. Did, the, you know, did God create our brain? Are we hardwired for, for religion? Are we hardwired for God? Uh, these are some really interesting questions, and they're obviously not simple questions to answer, and I'm certainly not going to give you any straight answers uh, today, but, uh, but I'm certainly going to try to give you a lot to think about as you think about your own answers to these questions. Um, we also have to think about, and I'm very excited as, as I'll be talking about this a little bit later, um, that every tradition has its own ideas about what God is um, and how we might be able to engage God. So, you know, there are a lot of different ways of thinking about this question, too. And if you come at it from a Jewish perspective, then you may have one take on this. We also can talk about the research. So we're going to look at some brain scans a little bit later, and we're going to try to understand um, what we can understand in terms of the biology of the brain, um, how we try to get at different aspects of religious and spiritual experiences, what kinds of questions we can try to ask. You know, we so often rely on the sacred text, we rely on the Torah, we rely on the Talmud or something like that. So ultimately, the goal is trying to help us to understand, perhaps with a slightly different perspective than we've had before, the nature of re religious and spiritual beliefs, experiences, phenomena, and also, of course, in the context of today's, um, today's conference, about how this may have some practical applications in the context of health and well-being. So uh, about 25 years ago, there was a, uh, an article that was written in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it was written by a neuroscientist who had gone to the Sistine Chapel and looked up at the beautiful ceiling by Michelangelo, and he took a look at this image of God reaching to Adam. And as a neuroscientist, he started to think about that he had this interesting vision as he was kind of looking at it, that something looked awfully familiar to him. Um, he actually thought that the image of God had a lot of similar characteristics to the brain. And he goes into this whole discussion about that, you know, this may not be quite so much of a stretch that a lot of times uh, artists in many ways would, um, would, would actually do dissections of the human body. And so, you know, whether it was purposeful or inadvertent, um, that he may have done something in the context of what the brain kind of looked like, even the little... I don't know if I got a pointer here, yeah. Even the feet coming out here are kind of the, the brain stem a little bit. But he also goes into another interesting part of the conversation, which is, or, or part of the idea, which is that where the hand of God, whoops, uh, where the hand of God is reaching to Adam, 
um, that was coming out of the frontal lobe of the brain. And he goes on to say that, well, that's kind of interesting because of all the different parts of our brain, it is the frontal lobe that in many ways really makes us human. In fact, if you compare the brains of lots of different animals, the frontal lobes in human is much, much larger relative to the rest of the brain than any other animal's brain. And it's our frontal lobes that help us with what are called executive functions, um, the ability to kind of plan your day, to think about things, to concentrate on things, um, to regulate our emotional responses, our behaviors, language, to produce language. So all these things are part of the frontal lobe and he goes into this interesting discussion about, well, maybe it isn't so much that, that God created Adam you know, physically, but created the brain of human beings and enabled us to do all the things that make us uh, human and make us be able to have some connection with the divine, with God in some kind of way, and to think about the various religious and spiritual ideas that have permeated humanity from the beginning. So let us just dive into this in a little bit more detail in this, so that we're all on the same page here. Um, this is a, a side view of the brain, so it'd be if I'm kind of looking this way. And as I mentioned, the, the very front part of the brain is the frontal lobe. I sometimes refer to this uh, as an attention area because it is involved in helping us to focus our mind, to focus our attention on various tasks at hand. And that can include things like saying prayers, doing different rituals, um, you know, what, what things we need to do for Shabbat and so forth. Um, there is the, um, the side area of the brain, the temporal lobe, which is very involved in language and memory. It also actually is a little bit involved in our visual processing. So if you think about an image, for example, if you think about the Star of David and your you know, image, bringing that image into your mind, then it's part of the visual areas here. Deeper inside of the temporal lobe, as we'll talk about in a second, are the limbic, system, the limbic system structures, the amygdala and the hippocampus, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, and another area that I've been very involved in looking at is the parietal lobe, which is located in the back part of the brain. I sometimes refer to this as an orientation area because it's part of our brain that helps us to establish the spatial representation of ourself. And so when we have an experience where we sort of lose that sense of self or feel connected to another person or to God or something like that, then something might be going on in this area of the brain. Uh, and the last area I'll just talk about here is the, this kind of junction between the temporal and the parietal lobes, which many ways, in many ways acts as a kind of verbal conceptual area. It's involved in helping us with language, uh, in, in thinking about abstract ideas, abstract thoughts. And so, you know, again, this is a very, very cursory, you know, normally you need about seven years to understand this. Um, so we did that in about seven seconds. Um, but but you, at least we get a, a general idea of the areas of the brain that we're going to be talking about in a few moments. Um, I mentioned the limbic system. And so the limbic system is a more central set of structures. The uh, limbic comes from limbus because it sort of encircles the, the lower basic parts of the brain. And this includes structures that you probably have heard of, such as the amygdala and the hippocampus, very involved in our emotional processing. And so when we have something very intense that happens to us emotionally, these areas activate. And they're also interestingly connected to our memory banks. So uh, these are the areas of our brain that help us to remember things that are emotionally important. And that's why you'll remember you know, when you got married or you'll remember an important day in your life because it's emotionally important and you don't remember the other days because it's, just, it's not as relevant for your brain. And that makes sense. We want to remember emotionally important things, both good and bad. Uh, for the brain, more for the bad, right? We want to make sure that we avoid things that were problematic for us. 
So these emotional areas are also going to come into play when we start talking a little bit more about how the brain actually operates during various practices like meditation, prayer. Uh, we've done studies of uh, many different, uh, pretty much every of the major traditions. Um, so uh, we studied uh, Christian prayer, speaking in tongues, uh, other types of rituals. Um, so we'll talk about a bunch of these different ones. Uh, we're not gonna be able to get to all of them, but certainly we, we have looked at this. And we do this by using a whole array of different kinds of imaging techniques. So functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, which I'm sure many of you have heard about, a little lesser well-known, although certainly very prominent in research in the medical world, are things like positron emission tomography, PET imaging, SPECT imaging, single photon emission computed tomography. Basically, these are just all different ways of getting at the brain functionally. So we're not just looking at what's there, but we're looking at what it's doing there. Because obviously, if I were to take a structural image of your brain right now, and then you were to get into a very deep state of prayer, nothing really would change in terms of the structure of the brain. But all kinds of things are going on in terms of the metabolic activity and the blood flow and the neurotransmitters. Um, so all these different kinds of things are happening. And that's why we need these functional approaches to understanding the brain. So this is one of our early studies that we did looking at prayer, and this is the first scan I'm going to show you. Um, this is a spec scan of the brain, and the way to understand this um, is that we're looking at the different colors which represent activity. So the colors represent blood flow in the brain, and one of the good things about how the brain works is that kind of like the, the engine in your car, if you wanna go faster, you deliver more gasoline. So if you want to use a part of your brain more, you deliver more gasoline, in this case, blood flow, which brings in oxygen, gl glucose, uh, and all the things that the brain needs in order to function. So, um, and the way you're, uh, when you're looking at this, it's as if you're looking at the person from the feet up. And so this is the frontal lobe here. This is the back of the brain here. And again, the colors represent activity. So the red areas are the most active, followed by the yellow, the blue, and the black. And I, I apologize that there's sort of like a, a light on here, which makes it a little challenging to see this. Um, whoop, let me see. Uh, hang on. So if you look at uh, a couple of areas that I want to point out, this is the person in the resting state. This is not while they were doing prayer or meditation. This is just when they were just kind of sitting there doing nothing in particular. And when we looked at the frontal lobe, um, you can see a little bit of red, some yellow. Uh, if we look at the language area, that's that verbal conceptual area that I was mentioning. Again, you know, a little, little blush of activity in there, but not much going on. Now, this is actually from one of our uh, early studies that we're looking at Franciscan nuns doing a very intensive form of Christian prayer. And when we had them doing the prayer state, now, if you kind of focus on those two areas that I was just pointing at, what you see is that this area becomes much more active. There's a big blob of red activity there and also over here. So the frontal lobe became more active and also the language areas became more active. This makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, when the person is doing the meditation, when they're doing their prayer, they, it is a verbal practice. They're saying something or they're reflecting on something out of, the, out of the Bible and they are concentrating on it. So they are bringing their attention, they're focusing their mind on that particular concept, topic, practice, you know, whether it's repeating it or focusing on it, and it activates their frontal lobes. And we're going to get back to why this is so important from a health-related perspective, but at least we're starting to see that there's a physiological process that's going on when the person is engaged in a practice. Now, uh, obviously, in today's conference is focusing more on Judaism, and we certainly have done that with a, a lot of our research. Uh, recently publishing a book uh, I did with one of my colleagues who was a medical student at the time and now is a psychiatrist, 
uh, and uh, very interested in human health and well-being, David Halpern. Um, and we, um, we published a book called The Rabbi's Brain, and you'll understand why we discuss, uh, use that title in a moment. Um, but overall, obviously, uh, the, the Jewish population has some very unique elements to it in the context of trying to understand it and study it. Um, obviously, we Jewish people have been around for thousands and thousands of years, so there's certainly uh, an element of longevity, which has value and meaning in terms of trying to understand what's going on, and maybe we can use this information to understand other groups of people as well who, who came along afterwards in terms of where the similarities are and where the differences are. Um, it's a very small group of people, and that you know has good and bad to it. Obviously, the, the nice part about it is that it, it gives us a fairly focused population of people. Uh, if you were to look at Christi Christians around the world, it becomes more challenging to think about is there a similarity or difference between Christians in Europe and South America and Africa? You know, obviously very, very different backgrounds and, and uh, cultures. So, you know, it's, it's much more uniform, which gives us an opportunity to try to study the Jewish brain more effectively and hopefully, you know, try to target uh, investigations a little bit more specifically about the beliefs, uh, the various practices that they uh, may all have uh, on the human brain. Other aspects of Judaism, which I think are also important in this context, are that there is the cultural, there, there is the religious aspect, but there is a cultural aspect, there's an ethnic aspect as well. Um, so again, you can think about ways of trying to differentiate those and explore that as well. Um, we can see how those different aspects of Judaism interact with each other. And again, hopefully, uh, when, when we actually finally published The Rabbi's Brain, I was very excited uh, because that was my personal background as well. But, um, but I realized that, wow, we can start to do this for all the different religious groups around the world. And, uh, and so you know, this, to me, is a very unique opportunity to expand the, the field of neurotheology, which is trying to understand the relationship between our brain and our religious and spiritual selves. So you heard neurotheology a couple times so far today, and I feel obligated to tell you a little bit more about what I think that, that term actually is. So the most brief way of stating it is that neurotheology is the field of study that links the neurosciences with religion and theology. Now, a couple of very important points, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned, and, and hopefully you will take this as well as being very important ways of thinking about what this field is. Um, it is not just neuroscience looking at religion. There are times where that will happen. We'll do a brain scan of somebody who's religious or spiritual or doing a prayer practice, but that's not the goal of neurotheology, to just study religion from a scientific perspective. It's also not a religious or theological perspective on what science is and how we think about what science can provide. Uh, ultimately, I feel that for neurotheology to really work as a field, it is a two-way dialogue or two-way street that helps to bring together what arguably are the two most powerful forces in human history, the, the religious and spiritual on one side, the scientific and technological on the other side, bring them together to help us to understand who we are as effectively as possible. Now, I think it's also important that both sides of neurotheology need to be held to the highest of standards. So we need to make sure that the science is kept as rigorous as possible. We need to make sure that religion is kept religious. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, well, we just saw the brain scan a few moments ago. Well, you know, shoving somebody into an MRI scanner and saying, okay, now I want you to have a deep spiritual experience, um, that doesn't always work so well. And so if I do, although a lot of people like to pray in the scanners, um, <laughs> but, uh, but I think that, um, 
one of the important points is, is that we need to make sure that if I'm going to do a brain scan of a certain type of prayer, that the person is really doing it, that the person is really engaged in it in the way that they more naturally would be if they were in their, their synagogue or their church or wherever they were going. So we need to make sure that the religious part is, is maintained. Otherwise, I'm not really studying it properly. Um, and of course, we want to do good science as well. We want to make sure that the science is done as best as possible. I also think that the neuro and the theology sides need to be defined very broadly so that we need to make sure that, you know, it's not just neuroscience, it can be uh, psychology, it can be various aspects of the medical field of health and well-being, um, it can be sociology, anthropology, and of course theology is a very specific top, you know, a very specific area of scholarship taking a, a given religion and trying to break it down and study it. But we're talking about looking at prayer, looking at spirituality, looking at rituals, looking at practices, beliefs. And so we can really expand this you know, on both sides of neurotheology to help us to understand what it means ultimately for us as human beings to be religious and spiritual. So I did write a book entitled The Rabbi's Brain with my colleague David Halpern. And we said, well, um, how do we start to explore the rabbi's brain? Well, we try to do this in two different ways for all the traditions and all the studies that we do. One is we have to understand what the person is actually doing. That's the keeping the religion religious. Um, so we develop surveys, we develop questionnaires to ask people questions to try to get at, you know, we don't want to just assume that people think a certain way or believe a certain way. We want to ask them, what are they really feeling? And how are they feeling it? And how do they use the different parts of their cognitive and emotional uh, components of their brain to try to understand what's going on. This started originally with a survey of spiritual experiences where we got a couple of thousand people who responded from all different traditions around the world. Um, but for this particular book, we decided to look at rabbis specifically. So over about a six month period, we got uh, about 160 rabbis to respond. And that's a, a nice number, I, we thought. Uh, different backgrounds, so actually pretty well represented. And we asked them a lot of questions. So we asked them questions about you know, how they think, how they feel, uh, what, you know, even questions about how did they become a rabbi, why did they want to become a rabbi, how do they use their emotions and thoughts, um, what kinds of experiences have they had, uh, and, and even the big question about you know, what do they actually believe, and do they even believe in God. So um, one of the first questions we asked them was, how are, you know, what kind of guides you in your life, in your ways of thinking about things? Uh, how much do you use your emotions, your thoughts, your experiences? And what we found was, for the most part, uh, emotions are fairly well used. Uh, at least about 50% use them either a moderate or significant amount. About the other, maybe 40% use their emotions a little bit more mildly. So, you know, we thought this was kind of interesting, that certainly emotions are used. Um, again, it'd be really interesting to ask this question to other traditions, to other cultural backgrounds, about how much they use their emotional processes versus their cognitive. But this then ties in back to the brain. So where are our emotions in the brain? Well, they are in our limbic system areas that we talked about a little earlier. And here is another scan of uh, an individual in deep prayer. And if you look at where this arrow is pointing, that was right in that sort of side area of the brain in the temporal lobe. So this is, again is this sort of resting state, this comparative state of the brain. And if you look right there, um, when they were engaged in deep prayer, their limbic system turns on. And for most of you who have been involved in prayer uh, over your lifetime, uh, a lot of times you can get very emotional in prayer, um, sometimes extremely emotional. And of course, it depends on what the prayer is and how much it's done and, and what it means to you at a given time in your life. 
but when you get very uh, deeply emotional in the context of your prayer practice, then it looks like the limbic system and some of the emotional centers of the brain turn on. So that correlates a little bit with what we were learning about in terms of how rabbis thought about things. Um, I thought, you know, this was interesting that thoughts and cognitive processes really much more used. You can see almost uh, half said a very significant amount. Um, another, you know, maybe 35, 40% um, said a moderate amount. So only, you know, about 15 to 20% said that they don't really use their thoughts or, or cognitive processes as much. So again, you know, this is very interesting. It looks like we're talking about using thoughts and cognitive uh, elements of the brain much more so than we are talking about the emotional centers of the brain. And then when we talk about experiences, the same kind of uh, uh, distribution arose. About 50% use their own personal experiences to a very significant amount, another 40% a moderate amount. So this is the experiences that they may have had studying the Torah, uh, out in the community, and so forth, but they use their personal experiences kind of guiding the ways they think about their beliefs. And again, we can start to try to tie these in. You know, when we're talking about the cognitive process, we're talking about the frontal lobe, we're talking about that verbal conceptual area. Here we might be talking about the sensory areas uh, and areas such as uh, this uh, area I listed here called the thalamus, which is a very central structure that helps to mediate a lot of our emotional, uh, a lot of our experiential processes, excuse me. Uh, and, and so again, you know, this is just an initial, how do people really think about these things? And we were able to use this kind of a survey to get at some very interesting questions. So here is an image of the thalamus, which uh, again, in the resting state, um, there, you can see there's one on each side of the brain and they're, they're pretty symmetric, they're pretty equal. But when the person engages deeply in the meditation or prayer practice, there's a shift in the thalamus and that has something to do with how the person actually uses their experiences to perceive reality and to think about that reality. And we can see these kinds of shifts occurring and we can see them occurring not only in the moment of prayer or meditation, but even over the long term, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, in our survey, about two thirds of the rabbis reported having some kind of mystical experiences. Now, I talked a little bit about the parietal lobe being involved in that, that maybe that has something to do with these kinds of experiences. So the parietal lobe, as I said, located in the back of the brain, is very involved in taking sensory information and helping us to create our sense of self. So you use your parietal lobe at the end of the talk today to navigate your way out of the room, don't bump into anybody, and walk through the door. So what would happen, for example, if the, this area of activity that helps to kind of create your spatial representation of the self and differentiates the self from, from other things in the world, um, what might be happening when a person loses that sense of self, loses that sense of distinction between the self and other? Well, what we see happening is, is that the parietal lobe actually decreases pretty substantially, and we've seen this in a lot of different practices, that uh, this decrease, again, if this area normally turns on to give you your spatial representation of the self, then as it shuts down, you lose that sense of yourself. And that's exactly what we tend to see, both in terms of the scans, as well as in terms of what people describe for us uh, in the practices that they're doing. Now, the, the title of the talk was, how, do how does God change your brain, basically? So we're talking already about how it happens in the moment, but what about the long-term? And this actually has, starts to have more implications for health and well-being. Uh, you know, it's all great and, and to be able to say, oh yeah, you know, my frontal lobe turned on when I did my meditation, but why is that relevant in terms of greater health and well-being in the long run? 
So we decided to take individuals who had not really done much of a practice before and do some kind of uh, brain scan before and after doing a particular type of meditation practice. Uh, in fact, the one that we specifically started with was something called Kirtan Kriya. It, is a, it actually derives out of the Kundalini Yoga tradition, but it's very, you know, we can secularize it. You're basically just repeating certain sounds, but you're breathing with it. You're using your fingers as well to kind of count it out. Um, and you're, you're just, uh, you know, repeating these different phrases. Um, so here are four spec scans of individuals who went through this program. And uh, one of the things I liked about it from a purely health perspective is that they do it for 12 minutes a day. So it's hard for people to say, oh, I don't have the time to do it. Um, which happens with some of the other practices like mindfulness, for example. And so uh, the A scan is their person's brain when they first came in. This is just basically coming in off the street and we scan their brain at rest. And then um, we taught them how to do the meditation practice and we scan them uh, that same day. And uh, this is during the, the first performance of the meditation. Then they come back eight weeks later after doing the practice for uh, each day uh, for eight weeks. So the C scan is kind of comparable to the A scan. And then the D scan was them doing the practice for the very last time. So the most important two scans really are the A and the C scan. This is the resting brain function. They're not meditating at this moment. This is just how their brain is operating at baseline. And if you look at two main areas, uh, if you look at the frontal lobes here, you can see that it's mostly yellow. But after coming back after um, eight weeks of doing the meditation practice, there's more red spots here and here and here. And, and we can quantify all of this. I should be clear that this is not just me saying, oh yeah, the colors look bigger or brighter or happier, um, that there's actually some numbers behind this as well and, and statistics. Uh, but what we saw was that the frontal lobe became functionally more active. This cor uh, corroborates other studies that have found that long-term meditators actually have bigger or thicker frontal lobes than non-meditators. So to me, you know, to the actual analogy is thinking about meditation or prayer as a kind of exercise. If you exercise your arm, if you lift your weights, then what happens? Your muscle becomes bigger and it actually becomes stronger. You can lift more the next time. And in many ways, meditation is kind of exercise for your brain because the frontal lobe actually becomes bigger, just like a muscle, and it actually becomes stronger. It becomes more active. And since the frontal lobes regulate the limbic areas, there's a balance that occurs between the two, then that means that people are less likely to feel symptoms of depression, anxiety, and that also is what we measured in the context of our study. So we're able to see the physiological aspect of what's going on, as well as trying to understand uh, what's going on from a psychological or, or spiritual perspective. The other area of, our, of the brain that we noticed was very intriguing was the thalamus that I mentioned earlier. So the thalamus, very centrally located in this particular individual, a little bit asymmetric, more the other way. This is a little bit blobbier and redder than over here. But when they came back, it's more equivalent. Maybe this side is a little bit more active and even more so um, as the result of doing the practice. So the thalamus, which is regulating your sensory inflow, um, helps because it's a central structure, it coordinates the activity between different parts of the brain with each other. So it makes some sense that you know, there's this massive change that's going on in the thalamus. And it, you know, to me, I always feel like, well, if we could elicit these changes eight in eight weeks by doing a simple practice for 12 minutes a day, you can imagine what's going on in the brain of somebody who's doing prayer and meditation practices for hours a day for a lifetime and how that changes the way your frontal lobe works, your emotions work, your cognitive processes work, your entire experience of reality. 
and how that actually changes the way you think about things and see the world. This is one other very interesting scan um, that look, does not look like the other scans. Um, this is uh, one of the very first studies that has ever been done, and we were really fortunate to be able to do that, where we're looking at these very central areas of the brain. This is not the thalamus. This is actually what's called the basal ganglia. And I haven't mentioned this yet, but these are some of the dopamine and serotonin areas of the brain. Uh, the serotonin areas are down in the brain stem, and the dopamine areas are in the basal ganglia. So this is the result of a pre and post scan. So this is the initial scan, and this is the follow-up scan on people who went through a spiritual retreat program. So we sent them, this was actually a Christian-based study, um, we sent them to a retreat center uh, outside of Philadelphia that is based on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Uh, it involves a lot of self-reflection, prayer, meditation for about a one-week period, and we scan them initially and then we scan them again. And hopefully you can see that there is a pretty substantial difference. This area is much more yellow than the deep reds that you see over here. So what does that mean? Well, this scan, it's, it's just try to walk you through it uh, briefly, but this scan is actually looking at something called the dopamine transporter. And what the dopamine transporter receptor does is it takes up excess dopamine uh, after the dopamine is released when you get happy or excited. Dopamine is involved in the reward system of the brain. If the dopamine transporter is decreased, what that basically means is that the brain becomes more sensitive to the effects of dopamine. In fact, in, in a kind of odd way, um, this is sort of parallel to what happens if you take the drug cocaine. It blocks the, the dopamine transporter and it allows this rush of dopamine, which gives you that euphoric high. So isn't it interesting that in a very natural way, going through meditation and prayer and so forth over an intensive period of time, that they kind of prime or predispose, I don't know what word really is the best, they prime the brain for its sensitivity to dopamine. And therefore, they are more likely to have very intense kinds of spiritual experiences. The same is true uh, on the serotonin side, and I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with some of the research being done now with psychedelic compounds that particularly affect the serotonergic system of the brain because they kind of flood the brain with serotonin and elicit experiences that are very intense. They can be psychedelic, you know, like LSD, but they are also described, as the research has shown, as being highly spiritual. So you know, we're starting to see this confluence of data and information about the different chemicals and the different areas of the brain, how they work, how they work together, that might elicit different experiences. And I think this is important too because, um, especially when you think about a practice like meditation, meditation is a technique, it's not an experience. It's the technique that leads to experiences. And this may help us to understand how that may happen. It may change the way the brain actually operates so that it can become more sensitive to the release of these kinds of neurotransmitters. So there are many positive health effects of spirituality. Um, over time, some of the early studies just looked at things like church attendance. A lot of them were more Christian-based. They were done in the United States with a pretty high Christian population. But these kind of parallel other traditions as well. Um, that you know, the more you went to church, which is a proxy for how religious you are. You know, if obviously if somebody goes every week, they're probably more religious than somebody who just goes on the big holidays. Um, you know, whether that's true fully or not is, is an interesting question as well. But overall, religion and spirituality has been shown to be very beneficial. It has been shown to be protective, uh, particularly in the adolescent population. Some of the great work by Dr. Lisa Miller at Columbia has shown this particularly in adolescents. 
Um, and, uh, and so, you know, again, there are these very positive health effects that we can kind of get a sense. It's a f these, these things are affecting the serotonin, the dopamine system, the frontal lobes, and so forth, and change the way a person actually thinks about themselves uh, and helps them to cope better, helps them to deal with both physical as well as mental issues that they may be dealing with, mental health issues that they may be dealing with. Um, and so, you know, there can be a lot of potential benefit for us to think about. Now, of course, it's all not purely rosy and, and terrific either. Um, and this, to me, is another really important area that has been woefully understudied uh, on, on all levels and also in the context of neurotheology. It's just that neurotheology is new to, the, to all of this, so we get, we get a little pass at the moment. But we've got to start studying this. Uh, and part of what we need to think about are the ways in which religion and spirituality, what happens when they turn bad? You know, what happens when somebody views God negatively? Uh, maybe, you know, they got cancer and they think God's punishing them because they didn't lead a virtuous life before, and so they're not less likely to pursue the appropriate treatments or to comply with what their doctor is telling them. Um, sometimes people get blamed for a disease because they weren't spir spiritual enough, for example. Um, even positive experiences, people who have very profound mystical experiences, near-death experiences, for the person they can be overwhelmingly positive, but there can be a great challenge sometimes that they don't fit well into their own religious or spiritual paradigm. It doesn't, you know, they don't, they don't have a way of integrating it into their prevailing belief system, and that can create a great sense of religious struggle and, and difficulty for them. Uh, ultimately, there are, you know, the truly negative aspects of all of this, uh, people who join cults, terrorist organizations, you know, how do you kind of convert somebody's brain into, you know, saying, okay, you know, God, I, I believe strongly in God, and I'm going to be you know, I'm going to go out and, and help people and, and try to, you know, be supportive of people who have different issues and be charitable and altruistic versus a, another person who says, I believe in God and I believe that I need to kill people who don't believe the way I do. Uh, what's the difference? And again, you know, from a neurotheological perspective, we have the ability to try to differentiate what's going on in the brain who go in these different directions. And, and even going back to the to the first one, the idea of viewing God negatively. I'm sure you know, we've all heard about, you know, or even from the work of Viktor Frankl and the Holocaust, you know, why was it that some people said, ah, you know, even though I'm suffering, God will get me through this. Other people say, why, why is God doing this to me? I reject God. And why do people go in these different directions? So these are the kinds of questions that we can start to explore and try to understand more effectively by looking not only at what the people are saying and feeling, but what's going on in their brain as well. Uh, so, now back to the rabbi's brain themselves in terms of thinking about uh, what's going on. You know, how can we start to think about this? Um, can we understand the different beliefs and the different processes by which we come to those beliefs, uh, especially in a deeply religious person? And does this give us new insights into the kinds of questions that we were just addressing about health, well-being, spiritual fitness, and so forth? And, um, and this leads us to a very embarrassing slide for me. Um, <laughs> So uh, as we were writing The Rabbi's Brain, um, David Halpern, who was, as I said, he is a psychiatrist now, and um, he is a, an Orthodox rabbi by training as well. Um, so we said, well, we've got to you know, scan a rabbi's brain. And of course, it wasn't just enough for us to scan his brain, but we should scan somebody else's brain who kind of believes the same things in, a, you know, in, in, in the basics way, basic way, but obviously doesn't have the same you know, uh, fervor that he has. So I became the proverbial guinea pig along with uh, David Halpern. And uh, now, so these are MRI scans. And um, what you're seeing here, MRI presentations look different. We don't get a pre and a post. 
we get the combined difference between the pre and the post, or the two different states. So we decided to do this. We decided to do two states of the brain while reciting something obvious to, while singing, basically. Um, on, on one hand, we decided to do something deeply religious, which was singing the Shema. And on the other hand, we decided to just sing uh, you know, kind of like a nursery rhyme song, and uh, I think we, we did Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but something that we knew and was easy and kind of repetitive. So what did we find? Well, um, this is David's brain, and you can see these little bright areas in here um, that are kind of greenish, and, and hopefully you can see this, but there's a whole bunch of these red areas over here. Um, on the fMRI scan, the red areas are the areas that turned on, and the kind of greenish-bluish areas were the areas that turned off. This was a very unique pattern that we have not seen in other practices before because one side of his frontal lobe was going up while the other side was going down. Now, we've seen practices where the frontal lobes go up. As I mentioned, when people meditate or pray, they're concentrating, they're focusing on the Shema, for example, and so the frontal lobe goes up. On the other hand, there are practices where a person kind of surrenders to the experience, gives themselves over to it, you know, releases themselves, different terms that people use, and when we see that, the frontal lobe goes down. And so when he was doing the Shema and the way he described it to me is on one hand, he is concentrating on the recitation of it, but he kind of loses himself in it. And it almost becomes, I don't know if automatic is quite the right word, but it kind of takes him over, so to speak, as part of the deeply you know, important part of his religious experience. So this to me was very interesting and very unique that we see one side going up and the other side going down. Now for the embarrassing part, this is my brain. Um, <laughs> And I know the Shema, <laughs> and I feel very strongly about it, <laughs> but obviously not to the same extent that he does, and it makes sense. I mean, this is just a fundamental part of who he is. Um, as, as you can see, there's just not a lot of green or red in my brain. So to, for me, uh, reciting the Shema wound up being not that much different than reciting something else. And so there was this kind of, that's why you just don't see very much of a change. Now, um, the other area that we looked at was deeper in, and again, I, I apologize, it's a little bright over here on the screen, but in addition to the frontal lobe changes, he activated his amygdala, he activated his limbic system, because it's emotionally important to him. It's really meaningful to him, and the amygdala, which you know, normally gets a bit of a bad rap because it becomes activated you know, under a fear condition, but it also gets activated under very positive things. So you know, if, if a loved one, your puppy walk, you know, wanders into the room, your amygdala turns on. And so under this very positive experience, his amygdala turned on, and that was a very fundamentally important part of the experience for him. Here's my amygdala. Um, once again, I'm very embarrassed by this. But, um, but the bottom line was is that, you know, for me, it, it, you know, obviously, even though I do feel like it has an emotional value to me, it clearly doesn't register on the brain scan in, in nearly the same way that his does. So we have these kind of interesting abilities to understand what's going on in the brain and to see the distinctions, the similarities and differences and try to think about this in the context not only of a particular practice or a particular tradition, but across traditions. How is this the same or different than other kinds of practices? Uh, if a Christian says the Lord's Prayer uh, or does the rosary or something like that, you know, are, where are the similarities and where are the differences? Now, ultimately, I do think that this whole field, this whole area of research has a lot of very exciting applications from the very esoteric 
debating theological questions. And what do I mean by that? You know, we can think about things about, um, you know, do we believe in God, for example, and what does it mean to believe in God? Do we have free will? Uh, what, is, what is evil? What is sin? What is forgiveness? And, you know, we have all these wonderful sacred texts and the people who have written about these over the thousands of years, but what's going on in our brain when we try to engage those same, when you try to engage that question, when you think about what free will is, when you think about God, um, what's going on in your brain, and is it an emotional experience, a cognitive experience, some combination? So there are a lot of great theological questions, and I'm not going to go into all of this because, again, that could be, you know, thousands of hours of discussion. But, but it just brings in another perspective that we never had before. It doesn't get rid of any of the sacred discussions and, and all of the philosophical and theological aspects of these conf- uh, discussions, but it brings in this new perspective that we've never had before. In the end, there are these kind of fundamental questions about the nature of reality, how we experience reality, what do we believe, um, uh, you know, how, do, how do our brain processes help us to explore that reality? And uh, will we ever get to these, uh, the, these epistemological questions? And it becomes this aspect of neuroepistemology. It's not just how we think about them philosophically, but what's our brain doing? Why does our brain think that these slides are here? And if I told you there was my little green assistant who was sitting on the desk, you would be like, oh, that's ridiculous. So, you know, why does your brain do that? And, uh, and how, do, how do we try to understand that? So ultimately, um, I do hope that all of this tells us something about the nature of this whole field of study of trying to get at how God changes or affects your brain, uh, this field called neurotheology. Uh, I hope that it provides many important pieces of information in the context of, uh, of science. You know, it helps us to understand the brain. People have talked about, you know, if people get into these altered states of consciousness through prayer and meditation, maybe we can understand what's going on Um, from the perspective of the brain and try to understand that more effectively. Uh, We may be able to explain or or, or try to get at different questions in theology and in religion. And hopefully this helps us to understand the nature of different traditions. And there is a great practical application as well. We start to think about where religion and spirituality can be beneficial for people. How do we optimize that by using this kind of information and research? Uh, and also what happens when, pe- when things go bad and how we might be able to redirect people in a more positive kind of direction. So if you are interested in exploring this in more detail and all of the glorious results of our survey, um, this is our book, The Rabbi's Brain. Um, we also uh, published a book called Neurotheology, if you want to explore that field. And uh, another uh, student and colleague of mine who's now a professor at uh, Johns Hopkins University in psychiatry as well, um, David Yaden. Uh, we have a book coming out in a couple of weeks. It was supposed to be out for the conference, but um, the varieties of spiritual experience where we, it goes back to some of our survey questions to try to get at uh, what the nature of these spiritual experiences are all about. And if you do have more, uh, like more information or like to contact me, you can do so through my website, andrewnewberg.com and, and learn all the things that we have to say. Thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.